You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. April 4th is Children's Day in Taiwan, which is great timing for this interview with children's book author Margaret Chu Granius. She spoke with me about her latest book, A Ma Far Away, which has many of its scenes set in Taipei. Margaret shared how she became a children's book author, what she loves about picture books, how they get created, and what she's working on next. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Taiwan Elite Alliance and the Taiwanese United Fund. The Taiwan Elite Alliance was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese American arts and literature and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom, and democracy of the people in Taiwan. The Taiwanese United Fund is an arts and culture foundation that celebrates the cultural heritages of Taiwanese Americans. Established in 1986, the foundation's mission is to facilitate cultural exchange between the Taiwanese American community and other American cultural communities, hoping to enrich and expand our cultural experiences. To learn more about TUF, visit their website at www.tufusa.org. Now, without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Margaret. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on here. I've been trying to get you on here for a while because I've heard all about your book. I think even before it got published, you know, since we have a family connection and my mother and aunt are old friends with your mother. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I wanted to talk to you about your most recent book, Ama Far Away. And I came across an interview in which you said that you wrote A Ma Far Away as something that's called a reverse poem. Can you explain what a reverse poem is? Sure. A reverse poem is one that can be read regularly from top to bottom and also in reverse from bottom to top. And both readings will have unique meanings and often they have opposite tones. So like the first half of A Ma Far Away is like the regular read from top to bottom and then the second half is like the reverse read which would have been from bottom to top so basically it goes you read it from the beginning to the middle and then in the middle it reverses to the end yeah i actually heard you read them off far away in a online uh, meeting and i really thought there was something poetic about it and then when i came across the interview i realized that it was because it was written as a reverse poem. So it's really interesting to me. Can you tell me what was the reverse poem that inspired you? And perhaps we can share a link to it on our website so anyone who's interested in knowing more can read it. Of course. Um, the reverse poem that inspired me to write I'm Off Our Way as a reverse poem was called The Lost Generation by Jonathan Reed. When read regularly from top to bottom, it talks about how his generation has become apathetic. It says things like work is more important than family and environmental destruction will be the norm. You can, see, you can tell that's super negative and very cynical. But then when you read it from in reverse from bottom to top, the poem is all about how his generation will reverse all of these negative things and the tone becomes very hopeful. It's really dramatic and it's amazing to hear because it just sounds just how negative it sounds on the way down. But then on the way up, it's just 
such a difference. Yeah, it's so hopeful. What inspired you to write Amah Far Away? Amah Far Away was inspired by my relationship with my Amah. She was my only grandparent that I grew up with. Um, and so she was my everything grandparent. She was so important to me. Um, like Ky Kylie, I grew up in the United States. Um, Kylie's my main character in case um, people haven't read the book. But Kylie, like Kylie, I grew up in the United States while my Emma lived in Taipei. And whenever we saw each other, which wasn't very often because of the distance, I always hung back and needed some time to warm up. Um, but eventually things would flip after spending some time with her and I'd be stuck to her side for the rest of her visit. One time I remember when she was done visiting my family and was ready to visit my uncle's family, I actually wasn't ready for her to leave. So I ended up going with her to visit my uncle's family. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet um and obviously you've um, updated it a little bit was any part of the book inspired by your daughter's relationship with your mother because i understand that your mother spends a lot of time in taiwan as well yeah so the general concept of ma far away that flip was based on my relationship with my Emma. But then there were specific scenes that were based on when my children visited Ta visited taiwan with with my mom she, actually, she was already there for an extended visit, um, but this was seven years ago, and she led us around Taipei. She was just like the Emma in the story. Emma in the story leads Kylie all around Taipei. Mm -hmm. My mom actually dragged us all over the island <laughs> instead of just <laughs> Taipei. So, and right. actually, scene-wise, there is one banquet scene in the first half of Emma Far Away that is straight from our visit. On day two of our 10-day visit, my mom threw this huge family banquet and she invited 14 tables of family most of whom we had never met before definitely my kids had never met anyone because they'd never been to taiwan before um, and of course there was a ton of food and you'd think that there would be a lot to choose from right but just like kylie in the story my kids watched all the food come out from the kitchen and then they only ate the rice so, and I was thinking this was day two of a 10 day visit. So I wondered what my kids were going to eat for the rest of the trip. But this is exactly kind of how they're exactly in the place that Kylie was in the beginning of the book. And they also ended in a similar place that yeah. Kylie did at the end of the book. 14 tables of relatives. My goodness. That's crazy. That's like a wedding banquet. almost. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. I mean, it was family and then it was actual family, and then there was family that I wasn't sure how we were related to. Yeah. Both my grandparents on my mom's side were adopted. So there was, there was biological family, and there was adopted okay. family, and so it was <laughs> everyone. Yeah, right. Oh, I'm actually also curious to know, are your children the age that is appropriate to read your book? And if they are, have they read their books? Have you read your books to them? And how do they react to your books? Yeah, so when I first got my copies of the book, I read the book to my seven-year-old and my 12-year-old. My 12-year-old actually went to Taipei when he was just turning four. My seven-year-old wasn't yet born. And so, but they both listened and they were entranced by the illustrations. And my older one, my 12-year-old, saw himself. He, could, he saw how he was when he visited Taipei. And then my younger one, was just like she she really wants to go now so <laughs> it was really sweet yeah so that's good inspiration so she hasn't been yet mm -mm. 
Can you tell me what are some of your fondest memories of Taiwan as a child when you visited? So it's been a long time since I was a child visiting Taipei. Yeah. Um, and my memories are pretty hazy, um, but the mm. ones that stand out are arriving in Taipei and traveling by taxi to my ama's apartment and mm. walking in the dark to her apartment, getting mm. in the elevator, um, and arriving and eating lychee fruit. Um, as one of the first things we do, sit, sitting mm -hmm. down and catching up. Um, also playing with cousins. Uh, the cousins on my mom's side lived in her childhood home. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was a fun place to visit. Uh, our cousins mm -hmm. spoke a little bit of English and we spoke a little bit of Taiwanese. I have two brothers. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was mm -hmm. just enough to play some kind of more active games. And so our cousins mm -hmm. chased us around. It was just really fun to explore and the house it was cool to see where my mom grew up it's it was yeah. different from the houses here it was older there's no carpet I still remember the smell and then the last <laughs> memory I'll share is buying things from the night market so when I was little I was oh, obsessed yeah. with stuffed animals <laughs> and they had uh -huh. a ton of stuffed animals at the night market so it was like my dream and the oh, animals wow. were so cute and so cheap <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah so i remember my mom buying me one animal in particular it was a big flat orange mouse and i would describe it as it was not that cute but it, i would describe it as <laughs> it was huge it was like a predecessor to the pillow pet so if you can imagine uh -huh. like how whatever six-year-old me yeah <laughs> reacted to yeah that. i mean if you go to the right night market it can really be like a carnival like atmosphere for sure yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit more on your relationship with your grandmother? You mentioned that she was your only grandparent. We didn't see each other that often. Maybe once every year or two, she would come. Um, and we, I think we went to Taiwan maybe, maybe only twice or three times in oh. my childhood. But yeah, we had a, once I got past that initial warming up period, we had a close relationship. Like I said, I was stuck to her side soon as I warmed up to her. She was really like very proper. She was raised during the Japanese occupation. Mm -hmm. She was a teacher. So she was had like a very gentle way about her, but she could also be stern because I think that was a teacher in her. But um, sure. she would instruct us on like the proper way of doing things, but like in like a really gentle and humorous way, um, like how to receive a red envelope. Like she always, um, whenever, whenever she came, she always gave us a red envelope. So she'd also so. visit you in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. That's oh, how that's how we saw her most because we yeah, right. didn't go back as that much. Right. And I understand that the illustrator of your book is also Taiwanese American. How important was that for you to find a Taiwanese American illustrator and how did you get connected with her? Yeah. Since the editor usually chooses the illustrator, I didn't really think much about what type of illustrator I wanted. I focus more on, you know, the things that I can control, which was the words. But I'm really grateful that Tracy Subasak, his half Taiwanese illustrated Amma Far Away, because she's lived in Taiwan and speaks Mandarin. So she was able to add a lot of Taiwanese detail to her illustration. When I saw the illustrations for the first time, I felt like she'd been to Taiwan with me. She deepened the sense of place in the story by adding things like Mandarin menus and specific Taiwanese foods and items that could be found that would be found at the night market. She chose settings for scenes that I only like 
specified in a general way, like I might have said at the park or at the hot springs. Well, she set the park scene at Da'an Park, which is a real park, and the hot springs at Beito. And so that was really nice that she was able to add that specificity. She even added, because she's, she knows Mandarin, she even added side conversations in Mandarin between Ama and Mama in the story. And in the end papers, actually, I'm going to show you the end papers, and I can show you the um, side conversations, and maybe you can include it in your show notes. This is an example of the Mandarin that Tracy added. It's a conversation mm-hmm. between Ama and Mama. So mm-hmm. it, these are kind of scattered throughout the book. Um, Uh And I thought that was really nice. It was nice um, for a nice little Easter egg for people that do speak Mandarin. And also it was nice to show how, because Kylie doesn't really understand Mandarin very well. Mm -hmm. So it was nice Mm -hmm. kind of to show how she didn't understand. Um, And and then the end papers. Uh These are the end papers. There, uh-huh. it's like a search and you can do a search and find these yep. these mm-hmm. illustrations are occur through the book, and in the uh-huh. beginning, they're labeled in uh-huh. English. Oh. But then, the reverse at the end, the end end papers, uh-huh. it's the same oh, sort of scribbles. That's neat. And she uh-huh. um, she made them in Mandarin. Oh, that's so. Really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So people that are learning Mandarin who or who want to, moments. yeah, who want to learn Mandarin are able to okay. to use it. Yeah. So I guess teach. that wasn't you hadn't intended on including that, and she brought that to the table. No, that was all yeah. her, and that's the beauty of yeah. having an illustrator. You know, have that much of a connection to the book that she's able to yeah to add that. Um, right. In the book, I understand that there's a song that Ama sings to Carly while they're on a video chat. Can you tell me what's the significance of that song? Sure. That song is Liangzi Laohu, and uh, Tracy actually included the words on her own. So she added that um, Mm -hmm. to the story. But coincidentally, this is a song that my mom sang to my kids when they were little. when she was trying to teach them Mandarin and trying to get them to sing along with her. So I was really touched that she added that. And it was such a great a coincidence. coincidence. Yeah. And what is the song about for people that know, like I'm not familiar with that. Oh, it's about uh, two tigers. One, gosh, I can't remember. It's one without, maybe one without a tail and one without eyes or something. Oh, okay. It's, okay. And then you asked me how I found her. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually for people who only write, the editor will buy the text manuscript. Um, uh-huh. Usually by the time they acquire a manuscript, they'll have a vision for what they want the book to look like and what kind of illustration style. So the editor will choose the illustrator based off of the vision that they have. Um, uh-huh. And they have access to lots of different illustrators. They learn about illustrators in so many different ways I can't even tell you all of them yeah Um, sure so my editor in particular had wanted to buy one of Tracy's also an author illustrator so she also Mm -hmm. writes and illustrates her own books so my editor had wanted to buy one of her books um Uh but it sold at auction so she she didn't win the auction but 
Mm-hmm. When she saw my manuscript, she jumped at the chance to uh, have Tracy illustrate it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I'm very, I'm curious about how this works. Is it also possible that you, if you had an illustrator that you wanted to work with from beginning to end for the book concept, that you could do that and then bring the whole entire package to the publisher? It is possible, and it's pretty rare, but it's possible. My first book, Maximilian Villainous, actually was this case because my agent at the time thought that it would be better and it might sell faster if it was attached to an illustrator. So we actually together picked an illustrator. He had a friend that was an art, an art agent. And so she gave us the names of a bunch of her clients who would be willing mm-hmm. to, to do this. It's, it's, it's kind of risky. It's called working on spec. So basically mm-hmm. illustrators would frown on this because you're not getting paid for your work until the book is bought. So my book is called Maximilian Villainous. It's about a monster who's born into this villainous family mm-hmm. and they want him to be like them, but he's not. He's a kind, very mm-hmm. kind monster. Mm-hmm. And the illustrator is Leslie Breen Withrow. So she, we mm-hmm. loved her art. It's very R- Richard Scarry-ish like. I can send you an image of the cover. So she, she received the manuscript and was willing to work on it. And then once it was mostly done, I mean, it wasn't finalized. Like she didn't do full color it was mostly sketches. My agent submitted the text with the manuscript to editors, and that's how we okay. sold it. But sometimes that's not the way to go. An editor may love the words, the manuscript, mm-hmm. but then not not like the illustrations. Yeah. Or, or have their own why vision. That's risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's risky. Yeah, so it's tough. It's tough to have to, once you've done all that work, to break it up. So yeah, it's not right. an ideal situation. We yeah. We got really lucky. So what was the idea behind Maximilian's Villainous? I actually watched a video of someone reading Maximilian Villainous on the Kid Time Storytime YouTube channel. So I had a chance to see what the story was about. How did you come up with the idea for that book? So I actually, I love that story time reading that you yeah, just it's talked so fun. about. She's hilarious. I came up with this idea when my kids were into the movie Despicable Me. We watched it so many times, but I didn't mind it because I thought it was hilarious and it had a lot of heart and I just love the characters. So I began thinking, well, about applying it to the picture book space. Like I didn't, couldn't recall any picture books about supervillains. And so that's how Mm -hmm. I came to write about villains. And then the story is also about wanting a pet. And I chose that because when I was little, I wanted a pet so badly. Like I would pour mm-hmm. over over the dog section in the D encyclope- encyclopedia. Like that's the only volume of our encyclopedia that got any use. It's because <laughs> I was learning all the different breeds of dogs. So oh, wow. that was like a big part of my childhood too. So mm-hmm. that was how I, that was how kind of how my idea came about. Oh, okay. So did you ever get the pet dog? Yes, I did. That's a whole nother oh, story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm curious, what is the process of working with an illustrator like? I can't imagine what it's like to see your story coming to life, like literally in a visual form. So you know how the editor chooses the illustrator, and usually the author and illustrator don't have any contacts about the book um, until after it's done. Um, And, you know, it's not like they, they introduce you 
a lot of my author friends are like have like Mm. reached out to their illustrator after the book Mm -hmm. has been done Mm -hmm. um and that's kind of how they they meet and I actually met Tracy uh once we started doing I think I followed her on social media um but we actually only met virtually um because we were doing promotion together and then we actually met in person just a couple weeks ago so it's been it's kind of interesting but anyway so we don't have any contact so the illustrator can oh. interpret the words and add their own spin mm. without being influenced. Mm. Um, and it's mm. pretty amazing oh, okay. what happens. Mm. So they illustrators, the way they, their brains work is mm-hmm. really cool because there's so many ways mm-hmm. that they add to the story that I could never mm-hmm. imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And what they do adds a lot of depth. Usually mm. um, some authors add illustration notes but these are generally notes that, you know, are critical to understanding the story and they don't dictate specifics. So, mm-hmm. um, so the illustrator can really kind of put their own stamp on it. Um, so yeah, okay. so as yeah. an author, I might get like a peek into, I think it's, it's specific to the editor, but I, in the last, actually, I'm working on another book that is coming out next year, but so far of my three books I've gotten peaks at, at the at the sketches mm-hmm. um, when they're things are far far enough along for me to tell what's going on but not yet final and um, mm-hmm. I am allowed to pass feedback back to the illustrator through the okay. editor but yeah. it's kind of their choice whether or not you know they want to pass it along um, but I'm really careful not to be heavy-handed in my notes usually I don't really make many notes um, mm-hmm. unless it's something I feel strongly about uh, and then I might get one other opportunity to see the art um, maybe after the color is done. But mm-hmm. feedback in general is pretty minimal, at least in my, oh, my okay. cases so far. Okay. Oh, I find that surprising. But I, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, if you don't want to impose on their creative process. That's interesting. And now for a short break. Talking Taiwan is a listener-supported podcast, and we want to take a moment to thank listeners like you for your generous contributions. You make our work possible. As the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast and a Golden Crane Award winner, we are dedicated to bringing you the stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. And if you haven't already, you can make a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash talking Taiwan. They always say that picture books are half, half the words and half the art. So if you think mm-hmm. of it as equal, equal parts in one creation, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it kind of makes a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, how did you decide to become a children's book author? I was reading a lot of books, picture books to my, um, when my first child was born. Um, and I discovered that I would often read, um, these picture books on my own when she was napping or when she was busy playing on her own. (laughs) So I was enjoying them as much, if not more than she was. And by the time (laughs) I had my second child, I was coming up with my own picture book ideas. And at some point I jotted one down and then I started to do research on what the next steps were. And the more I researched, the more achievable it sounded because the process was becoming demystified for me. 
So even though, you know, it's a long journey full of ups and downs and there's no guaranteed success, like I felt like it was achievable, like because I understood the process. So from then on, I fully committed and I found a critique group and took classes and found a community. And, you know, eight years later, I published my first book. So it took a while. Yeah, yeah, the research and uh, all that. What were you doing before you became a children's book author? So I've had a kind of winding road. So after college, I worked in advertising. Um, and then I worked in tech. And then I worked in consumer electronics. Um, I earned my MBA. Um, and I went into acquisition marketing, marketing for a magazine. Uh-huh. Um, it was Sunset Magazine. It's a, a magazine of Western living. It's a regional magazine, kind of a home travel garden and Oh, there's one more. It's been a long time. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, there are four yeah. um, cornerstones to the magazine. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, that was fun. But then after I had my first child, she wasn't adjusting to daycare. She wasn't taking anything but the bottle. And mm. so um, she eventually got kicked out, which was an interesting oh, no. thing. Um, oh. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to become a stay-at-home mom because she had a few other issues that we needed to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. but it was an, it was an adjustment and I found like that I still wanted to contribute to something outside the home. And so I was, I worked mm-hmm. on some entrepreneurial ideas. I went, eventually went back to work as a marketing contractor, um, for a short while, but then nothing really seemed right. Um, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. until I found right picture book writing. Mm-hmm. So when you started this process and you had this idea of becoming a children's book author and you're doing the research because you said the whole entire process took you eight years, did you share this with your family right away or you were just doing this and not sure if you were really going to do this? And like, at what point did you tell your family that you're going to do this and what was their reaction? Hmm. My husband always knew that I was doing it. Um, I don't remember about sharing when I shared it with my parents. I may not have shared it until I sold a book. What were some of your favorite books as a child? Uh, that's a good question. I can think of three. Um, one is, of course, they're all um, classics. One was, of course, Where the Wild Things Are. I just love that world that Maurice Sendak um, Mm -hmm. created the word and how the words and the pictures um, work together. It's just, I love, I love that book. Um, Mm -hmm. Another one was Harold and the Purple Crayon. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I also loved, uh, oh, Corduroy. I loved Mm -hmm. Corduroy. Corduroy was, um, well, of course, I love stuffed animals, right? So, yes, um, about, about the teddy bear who is uh, waiting to be bought in a department store. Um, and then a little girl comes and wants to buy him, but the mom says he's missing a button. So he's, you know, let's not buy him. And then he goes off when the store closes into the department store to find his missing button, um, which he doesn't, but he has a mm-hmm. great adventure. <laughs> and then the little girl comes back and she ends up buying him. I'm also wondering, how do you decide what to write about? 
That's a good question. Usually I will have different kinds of inspiration. It can be anything. It can be a picture that I see on the internet. It can be something my kids are obsessed over or something that they did. It can be a memory, like I'm off far away. And then I will kind of find a truth in it, in the story. Um, if, it, if there's a truth in it that applies to me, then I will you know, try and explore the inspiration further. When you mean a truth for it, you mean like um, a personal experience that you've had that you can connect with or write about? Yes, a personal experience, a feeling that I've experienced um, mm -hmm. that I think is universal mm -hmm. that other people would relate to. Right. And what's your writing process like? Do you have a particular routine or habits or things that you do? Generally, um, so I generally start by figuring out what, what the story is that I want to write. Like, who is the main character? Mm -hmm. What's their story? Mm -hmm. What's their problem? What's the heart of the story? And then I also mm -hmm. think about how would I pitch this story to someone to tell them what it's about? Like, a pitch is a two to three sentence summary that captures the essence of the story. Once mm -hmm. I have that, usually I'll start an email draft in Gmail and I'll okay. start dropping anything related to the story into it because I may not be thinking about it all the time, but sometimes at various points during my day, something will pop up and I'll want to mm -hmm. add it to my email draft so that I'll remember it. I mean, I like doing the email address because I can add to it from anywhere as yes. long as I have my phone and it saves mm -hmm. itself, but uh, you do have yeah. to be careful not to delete it. <laughs> yeah. So I might like brainstorm backstory in there. I might brainstorm ways a character might try, try solving their problem. If I problem, mm -hmm. if I come up with any jokes or funny moments, that'll go in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All the inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I finally have enough, well, I feel like I have enough to actually write a draft, I'll start a Word mm -hmm. document. What age group do you like writing for and why? Uh, so picture books are aimed at ages three to eight. So I typically write for mm -hmm. that age group. Although at some point I want to start writing chapter books and maybe a middle grade. Okay. So middle grade is typically ages eight to 12. Mm -hmm. And I just love everything about picture books. I love the wordplay. Yeah. I love the words and art and how they work together to tell a story. I love the characters. Mm -hmm. I love health playful mm -hmm. and fun they could be. I mm -hmm. love the hopeful messages. I love how they make me feel. And I love just being able to connect with kids these mm -hmm. ages. For a Far Away, I did a read aloud through World Read Aloud Day. Mm -hmm. It's like a day every year that okay. authors often give virtual visits to classrooms. Okay. I zoomed into six schools, but this one particular classroom, I did my read aloud and then I was taking questions and a little girl came up to the screen to ask a question. But what she really wanted to do was tell me that she spoke Mandarin. It was just amazing to see how this little girl connected the fact that there was Mandarin in the story. And I think she saw a little bit of herself in the book and it just validated her. And then later on, the teacher wrote me to say that that was her favorite part of the day because this girl is normally very quiet and, um, her face just lit up just to yeah. know that 
there was Mandarin in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so special. Thinking about when you and I were growing up, there weren't that many books like that for us, right? Like I don't、right. remember seeing any characters that were Asian or that I could specifically identify with. Yeah, I think the only one that I remember growing up was、um, it was the Five Chinese Brothers, which was pro- problematic. <laughs>、uh, although I don't think I rec- re- realized that at the time. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that, but yeah. Oh, it's about five. I think it was either five or seven Chinese brothers, and they all looked exactly the same, but they all had superpowers, specific、oh. different superpowers. And、um, I thought it—I can't remember the rest of the story, but it was just yeah, about yeah. them doing their superpowers. Was it written by an Asian author? I don't believe so. I'm curious. That's—I'd be really curious about that. No,、nope, it wasn't. It was written by Claire Huchette. Or Hushé Bishop. How does the experience of writing your first book compare with the second? I mean, I'm sure the first was like completely different because you're learning about the whole process. You hadn't been published at all, and actually, I even should rewind and ask you how did you go about figuring out how to get it published in the first place? Because I understand. When it comes to nonfiction books, that what you can do is put together a book proposal and pitch it to an agent. I'm not sure how that works for children's books. Yeah, for fiction children's books, you write your story and you get it as polished as possible, and then ideally, in most cases, in order to get it considered by editors at the major publishing houses, you have to find an agent, because a lot of those editors aren't open to unagented authors. So what I did was, first of all, I read writing children's books for dummies, and then I joined SCBWI, which is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators,、mm-hmm. and they had events which helped me learn more about the industry. And then I joined Twelve by Twelve, which is that community of picture book writers that I talked about. And there's other Facebook groups that also、mm-hmm. have, you know, talk about different publishing issues. Basically, I learned that I needed to. Have at least three polished p- picture book drafts in order to get an agent, and then I researched a lot of different agents that were taking because、mm-hmm. not all agents take picture books, and then not all、mm-hmm. agents take picture book text only writers. So I had to learn all that, and then、mm-hmm. once I found an agent, I think it took me. I mean, I started querying agents way too early; like I wasn't ready. Because my work wasn't really there, so once I found an agent, then they kind of guide you、yeah. to get to the part where that you can submit to editors. So your second book, you had to go through that whole process, or were you able to work with the same agent? Or yeah, so I ended up leaving my agent that sold the first book, and then、mm-hmm. I was without an agent when I wrote A Mile Far Away. Okay. And then I found an agent using that manuscript, like my lead manuscript、mm-hmm. that I queried with. Does it get easier, like you know, writing your second book? Like, do you think it gets easier now, writing your third? Ah,、uh, it does get a little, well, a little bit. I mean, the writing part gets a little bit easier. It's still a really tough process, but I think just knowing what to expect and kind of knowing like where I have to get my story to, what point. Um, and having critique partners in place, and having taken all the different craft workshops,、um, that part gets a little bit easier. 
but it is still really hard to write a full story in, you know, 500 words or less that's clear and that can um, resonate with readers' emotions. Um, and also coming up with a concept that um, that is fresh because, you know, thousands of picture books, millions probably have been published and writing something that is unique and fresh is maybe one of the hardest parts, I think. But it, it's helpful, you know, to have an agent. My agent's really good at once, you know, I talked about the writing process up to the critique group and how they helped me get it polished. But then once I send it to my agent, he's actually very, very good about um, providing feedback too. I go through a couple of rounds of feedback with him before he says it's ready um, to submit to editors. So that's helpful too. Yeah, I understand that's a really important relationship for the writer. You really do have to trust trust your agent and trust his or her um, knowledge and expertise because they read a lot. They read a lot of, they get a lot of, um, they get a lot of picture book submissions. So, and usually they've been in the industry for a while. What has the reception from the Taiwanese American community been like? It's been amazing because uh, there aren't that many. I actually, I don't know that there are really any picture books, at least not that I'm familiar mm -hmm. with, um, that mm -hmm. are so directly about Taiwanese culture. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. I mentioned there were two other um, picture mm -hmm. books from Taiwanese mm -hmm. authors, and there are mm -hmm. Taiwanese authors out there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Larissa Fan, Larissa Fan is one, and the Fan mm -hmm. brothers are actually mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. at least part Taiwanese. Um, mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it was really great because even leading up to the book being published, I was getting mm -hmm. messages through Instagram um, wow. and through other social media from people. Mm -hmm that were Taiwanese and looking forward to my book. And then even after, after it came out, I've had people reaching out, um, which it didn't happen with my first book. And I think it just mm -hmm. goes to show that people realize Taiwanese people realize that there hasn't really been mm -hmm. many books that reflect them. Right. Um, and tell our stories. Yeah, and so just being excited to see one. You know, there there are, will be more coming because I think that there's more focus on publishing more diverse stories, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is really great. What would you say are some of your favorite modern-day children's books? Do you have any recommendations? I do. I have a bunch, actually. I could give you a great. long list. Absolutely, uh, okay. yeah. So, yeah, we'll put them on our website. Shoot me an email later, and we'll share them on the website also. Okay. There's one called The Day You Begin. That's by Jacqueline Woodson, who's an amazing award-winning author, illustrated by Rafael Lopez, about a girl who feels like on the outside because she didn't travel to exciting places like her classmates did over the summer. But when she opens up and shares, others can find things in common with her. And the writing is just gorgeous. And I'm always in awe when I read it. There's one called The Book of Mistakes by Corinne Lucan. Mm -hmm. um, She's an author illustrator. It's about what can happen when you leverage a mistake into something unexpected. And the concept is brilliant and genius for a picture book because mm -hmm. at this young age, and even adults, I think, can mm -hmm. relate to this, but kids often do go through a phase where they have this drive to make everything perfect. 
and they won't yeah. do something unless it's perfect and it really hinders mm. their creativity. Mm. Also, there's a book called How to Wear a Sari by Darshna, Darshna Kiani, Joanne Lou Rehoff. It's about a little girl who wants to prove she's a grown up by wearing her mother's very unwieldy and complicated sari. Um, it's a really, really clever concept because it's mm -hmm. about something universal. Something universal. It's about a kid who wants to grow up and be seen as a big kid and also mm -hmm. dressing up in mom's clothes, but with yep. a cultural twist. So that's mm -hmm. super. And the voice is just really fun. And I'm going to share a few more. <laughs> There's one called Same, Same But Different. This is actually an older one, but it's, mm -hmm. I, I, I love it. It's called, it's by Jenny yeah. Sue Kosteki Shah. It's mm -hmm. about an American boy and an Indian boy who are pen pals telling each other about their lives. And I just love the art and how there's commonality between these two boys who live on opposite sides of the world. And then I have these two books by Taiwanese authors. There's okay. one called I Dream of Popo by Livia Blackburn mm -hmm. and illustrated by Julia Kuo, who's also Taiwanese, about a girl who immigrates from Taiwan to the United States, leaving her beloved Popo behind. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And it's mm -hmm. it always makes me tear up when I read it. And there's one called Eyes That Kiss in the Corner. You may have heard of this one because it's a, it was yes. a New York Times bestseller. And then she has a second mm -hmm. one called Eyes That Speak to the Stars by Joanna mm -hmm. Ho and illustrated by mm -hmm. Dung Ho, about a girl who sees her mm -hmm. eyes are different from her friends. But then she realizes they're beautiful because... Her ama, mama, and Maymay, the people she loves most, also share the same eyes and that they tie her to her, her heritage. And then this last one I love, it just came out as well. It's called Friends Are Friends Forever. It's by Dane Liu and illustrated by Lynn Skirfield. It's about a girl who emigrates from China and has a hard time finding her place in her new country. And it's mm -hmm. the words are beautiful and the illustrations are vibrant and it's just lovely all around. Hey, Did I give you, you enough? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. So I understand you're working on your next book. Can you tell us anything about it or is that under wraps still? I can. I can tell you. So next summer I have one coming out. It's called Hooked on Books. Um, okay. It's about a deep sea anglerfish who only wants to finish her book, except she keeps getting interrupted by other deep sea creatures. And so she swims deeper <laughs> and deeper into the ocean in search of the perfect place to read. Um, so that one's coming out next summer. And I also have an unannounced book coming mm -hmm. out next year as well. And that announcement actually should be coming out very soon. If people want to learn more about you and your books, where can they find you? Yeah, they can find me at margaretgranius.com on the web, or they can follow me on Twitter at margaretgrania. There's no S because it was, my name was too long. So just <laughs> at Margaret Grania on Twitter and then on Instagram at Margaret Granius. I wanted to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and sharing a little bit of insight into the whole writing process. Um, thank you for being on the podcast, Margaret. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I've been speaking with children's book author, Margaret Chu Granius about her latest book, A Ma Far Away. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Taiwan Elite Alliance and the Taiwanese United Fund. The Taiwan Elite Alliance was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese-American arts and literature and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom, and democracy of the people in Taiwan. The Taiwanese United Fund is an arts and culture foundation that celebrates the cultural heritages of Taiwanese-Americans 
Established in 1986, the Foundation's mission is to facilitate cultural exchange between the Taiwanese-American community and other American cultural communities, hoping to enrich and expand our cultural experiences. To learn more about TUF, visit their website at www.tufusa.org. If you enjoyed this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.